up, everybody? You are listening to List It, my podcast where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture. And I'm really, really excited about my guest today. He is a writer, he's a producer, he's an actor, uh, but you may know him best as the man that represents everything that's wrong with the paper industry. That's right. It's Paul Lieberstein who plays Toby Flinderson on The Office. But in addition to playing Toby, uh, he was also a producer. He was a writer on the series. He directed several episodes. He was even the showrunner for a couple of seasons. And so me and Paul uh, got together and we wanted to talk about some of uh, the best episodes of the series. So I talked through my top five favorite episodes and had him kind of give some background and kind of talk about what it was like working on the show. And, you know, before before we recorded this, I was kind of, uh, you know, doing some research and trying to pick out which episodes were my favorite. And I found myself, you know, just kind of sitting on my couch watching The Office uh, one evening. And that's something I've been doing a lot in the last year is kind of before bed, firing up a couple of episodes of The Office. There's something kind of weirdly comforting about the show. You know, there's a lot of, of heavy things going on in the world that you know, are, are very important things to pay attention to. But sometimes before bed, you just want to have something to kind of unwind to and let your mind turn off. And I think that's sort of what The Office has become lately to a lot of people. It, it's, it's comfort food. It, it makes you feel secure to kind of go back to Scranton and the Dunder Mifflin office and hang out with some friends and these characters that we've all come to know so well. And one of the great things, and Paul and I talk about this, is how well realized and how thought out those characters are. But in a lot of ways, too, I think something that has been comforting about The Office is remembering what things were like, honestly, just like a few months ago. You know, in addition to like watching how close and physical proximity is to everyone right now or on the show, which is such so drastically different than how people's lives are right now. One of the things that kind of jumped out to me was how everybody's dressed, you know, like and I started thinking, I don't know when the next time I'm going to wear a suit is. I don't even know when the next time I'm going to wear a dress shirt is. Uh, life has changed a lot since then. And it made me think back on the time when uh, a lot of people who work in offices, uh, you know, they 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 have these really unique relationships. And I, I remember hearing an interview with one of the, the creators of the show early on. And, you know, it, it'd be really easy to make a show that kind of makes fun of the mundanity of office life. You know, sort of like the movie Office Space did, which was, uh, you know, kind of this takedown of modern uh, professional office culture. Um, but the office, it wasn't cynical. <laughs> it, it looked at the beauty in the mundane. It didn't it didn't try to poke fun of it. You know, one I, I heard one of the, the creators say early on that, you know, there's something cool about the only context for a relationship is that you share a piece of carpet with somebody for eight hours a day. And that's that's something that I, I feel like a lot of a lot of us are kind of missing right now with kind of working virtually and being outside of, of, of a normal office setting, you know, a lot of the relationships on the show work and are so meaningful and fun to watch because they're relationships that wouldn't likely happen if it weren't for those people happen, happening to like work at the same building, you know? Not a lot of the characters have a lot of things in common. Um, they might not be people who would normally kind of hang out in after work settings, but the office brought them together. And that's what kind of makes the show so fun. And I think why rewatching it right now is such a valuable experience because it reminds us how we can be together with people who think differently and, and who have different values and different ideas. But they come together every day at the same time and they work towards a common goal. Sometimes they work harder and sometimes they kind of slack off. But it's really fun to go revisit that and reflect on like, what life was like for, you know, interacting with people kind of in that kind of uh, office setting. But also it, it's, it gives us a lot of hope to see how, you know, a sense of normalcy might be in the future. And we might all have the opportunity again to come together, to hang out in a shared space and be with people who we might not have a lot in common with, but we also kind of like being with. And that's what's so great about the show. And that's why it was so fun to kind of reflect on a lot of my favorite episodes and also to hear what the show meant to Paul and, and the cast. 
Uh, anyway, I know I'm rambling here, and you guys want to hear Paul Lieberstein, so I'm going to kick it over. Here are me and Paul Lieberstein talking through on my top five favorite episodes of The Office. Obviously, you were already established as a comedy writer and as a producer when The Office got started. You know, they wanted to do the, the American remake. When you guys first got together, did you realize like the chemistry on the cast and some of the talent that you guys really had something special? Um, yeah, I think um, there was something that was clicking that didn't feel like any other show. Yeah. Um, although. I mean, it, it's hard because, you know, every show feels a little different, every dynamic. And, yeah. and some shows that are like even toxic, you know, and people can't even, yeah. the actors don't even talk to each other. They, you know, they um, have been on stuff like that, you know, where they, you know, it's rehearsals, they cut on rehearsal and they all just disappear. Yeah. Um, but you can't, uh, and you can't from the inside just necessarily say, you're like, you know, this, because everybody's happy and working together and doing it, that that translates to a really good show. And I think there's like lots of shows where everyone's just thrilled to be together and they, you know, and they get along great. That stink, (laughs) you know, it's not a one, one. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yes, we were like clicking and it felt really unique and different and, and we were all really proud of what we were doing. Um, but, but still from there, it wasn't the sense of like, we got gold, you know, that, that, yeah. that, that was not, that was not there. It's, it's funny. I went, I went back and watched them to season one. I, I rewatched the series a lot, but going back to season one, you can tell that, that some of that tension is being worked out, but when it was, when it really struck gold, you know, especially, you know, when, when the, the gang has like note cards on their heads, like different races <laughs> and the tension is really there. It was like, man, this is going to be unlike anything else on TV. And it was really boundary pushing too. What, tell me a little bit about that, what that was like, kind of creating a comedy, not just format. Like I've always loved like Christopher Guest films that are kind of the mockumentary style, but that was really new to prime time. What was that like kind of experimenting with that format, which now, you know, you see on, on shows like Modern Family or kind of Arrested Development, but you guys were really pioneers. What was that like, you know, kind of going to that style of comedy? You know, it was, I mean, you know, given, going to what back you were talking about, did we think we were on to something? It, it was like, I thought we were doing something really, really cool, but I didn't think it was going to like catch on. It was so not commercial and different yeah. from what was going on. So, yeah. And I remember leaving that those six episodes with this really strong sense of like saying goodbye to everyone. And you know, that that's it, yeah. you know, six and out, yeah. um, you know, we had the model of the British, you know, which we yeah. loved and you know, they, they had a lot of integrity. Uh, to how they did things. And we just, I think, you know, there's a lot we didn't take and we really went in a new direction, but I think we tried to really stick to that integrity. And I felt, I felt good about it. I love season one. I really do, you know, and I think there's this kind of like, I think there's something out there with the press, you know, that I hear sometimes people ask questions like, well, you made some real adjustments and you found yourself in season two but I don't believe that at all. I, I think season one allowed a lot to happen, you know, yeah. and set this tone of uh, realism. Yeah. I, I think we were successful because of season one. Yeah, you know? for sure. And it, it, it kind of prepared audiences for the type of humor that, you know, which is more and more perfected over the years. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you probably get this asked ask this a lot, but you know, someone who who was in the writers' room and, and a producer and later showrunner, you know, you but you were in front of the a lot of fans. Obviously, know you from Toby. Where yeah. did that character come out? And and what what is the what I think is the the funniest running joke of the series is Michael's like just unexplained hatred for him. Where where did you guys? How did that kind of get cooked up? The the hatred itself was interesting. It was on. Um, the episode of Meredith's birthday where okay. Michael was just supposed to sign a card and he spent <laughs> the whole time thinking of something to say. That was his whole, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't believe we pulled off an episode where 
the main <laughs> character just was trying to think of something to say in a car. But it's so in Michael's lane. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I do feel like moves like that early on established it later when like his obsession yeah. with like a roast. There's you know, like yeah. <laughs> you know, you're really able to unpack that, you know. So it was in that episode. And so like one of the jokes was uh so here he was struggling the whole time. And so I walk into his office and I'm supposed to say, you know, like, oh hey, do you have the card? And it's, yeah, and I just go over, write something and leave. And he's just, you know. Um, yeah. And so, but when I write something, you know, even though like in editing, we collapse that time a little bit, you know, I wanted to like go and I, I wrote to Meredith, you know, wishing you a great birthday, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, so it took, a, it took like a little time to do it. And, uh, and then, so Steve, me it was like it was within there you know that steve started to feel this hatred towards Toby. Yeah, he just yeah. let it build up you know yeah so here's a guy who just didn't care uh, about <laughs> the stuff that he cares about yeah. <laughs> and uh um and then we just took it just went forward so we yeah. never had this meeting where we were like okay what uh what if michael hates toby you know that was never yeah. just it just happened. I, I think I was watching the other day. Uh, it was Michael's birthday. It was the one where Kevin thought he might have had skin cancer. And, you know, <laughs> Michael had brought in the donuts. And there's this great interaction. I was trying to think that may be like the first really, really mean time that, that Michael was mean to Toby, where he brought in the donuts. And Toby's like, oh, it's your birthday? Happy birthday. He's like, you didn't know my birthday. And he like closes the lid of the donut. <laughs> he brought in donuts. Somebody got donuts for my birthday. Happy birthday. You didn't know it was my birthday. I guess I forgot. Well, I guess I forgot to give you a donut. You're serious? Mm. How hard was it when you have someone like Steve Carell being just that like preposterously mean to just like hold it together? Because I mean, there are, are moments with Toby where I like I can't help but actually laugh out loud, even though I know the joke's coming. <laughs> um Surprisingly, it was like, you know, being slammed against the hockey rink. That was pretty easy not to break. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that moment. Why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. There were some that were really hard. There's one where he... And this was something we discuss. It's it's hardest when we discover something on set. Yeah. So I don't have time to kind of prepare and know what's coming. Um, but on set, we decided we we were we were sitting together in a cafeteria, and he was. Um, I was trying to make him feel better by telling him the story of like uh, my divorce, and he slides my tray right off the table. <laughs> and we just got that was just one take at the end. We decided to do that, and. That was hard, and we used all of we all of it we could before I broke. Dude, I've it's funny you say that. I've rewatched that scene and that episode so many times, and I always now I look to people in the background at a little corporate cafeteria. I'm like, how are they not laughing at, at what's <laughs> happening? Because there's another great moment in that scene where they they reveal at the deposition they have Michael's journal and uh, the 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 you know the cross during the cross examination. And the, the lawyer says, and who is this Ryan girl that he speaks so fondly of? And Toby starts cracking. It seemed like, I mean, obviously you're a great actor, but it seemed like that laugh really seemed genuine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember breaking in that moment. I wonder if that was an improv. No, that must have been scripted. I wonder what was making me. You know what? It was probably, uh, I mean, it's probably not the same take, right? Or no, yeah. it's a different. We probably had two cameras going at the same time. I can't speak to that moment. I don't yeah. remember. It's just, yeah, there's so many great Toby and Michael moments. It's such yeah. like, they are the ones that I feel like comedy wise have really aged well because they, they, they weren't afraid to just use meanness for humor in a really kind of like enjoyable way. Most you know? anybody ever broke. I recall was uh, when, when Kevin was sitting on Michael's lap <laughs> when he was dressed as Santa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that whole we had to switch angles like we, we couldn't get a reaction it was impossible everyone was absolutely breaking every yeah. take hello little boy what's your name michael it's me kevin 
Phyllis says I'm too big for her lap. Oh, I am so sorry that Phyllis hates you and hates your body. But Santa remembers a reindeer that was just a tiny bit different as well. When can I sit on your lap? Right now! Come on over here, big boy! There we go. Oh, my God. That's really comfortable. What would you like for Christmas, little boy? I don't know. I, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. What did you think was going to happen? I didn't know. Nobody's ever let me sit on their lap before. Right, just say some toys, please. Uh, can you give me some choices? Because I really don't want to mess up on this list. Damn it, Kevin, come on. That one's so funny. <laughs> really, it's it one person who can't keep it together, but no, no one could... Uh... No one could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are so many, so many great moments. I'm going to break down if this was really hard. Cause I, I wanted to pick like my five favorite, but there, I, I enjoy them all. I mean, like I said, I, I rewatched the series regularly, uh, you know, now that it's on Netflix, you know, I, I watched it when it was originally on, on TV, but now it's on Netflix. I feel like it's got this kind of new life and the office, you know, even for people who are, are quite a bit younger than myself have rediscovered it. And, Everyone kind of has their list of favorite Office uh, episodes. So I, I wanted to start off with one that I feel like it has maybe... And I see it's funny because I see this like pop up in my Facebook feed. A lot of times people have uploaded the clip. But maybe the funniest like seven or eight minutes stretch just in pure comedy in the whole series, which is Stress Relief. Which opens with you yeah. know Dwight uh, uh, setting a fire as the fire inspector. But from there, it just... It set up so many just incredible moments from the CPR scene where where Dwight you know ends up cutting the face off of the CPR <laughs> and and even the lines like and Michael is, is is like peak Michael at that point where uh you know the the dummy which is just the torso uh you know he says well if I find someone with no arms and legs do it is that even worth resuscitating <laughs> and Kevin interjects and he's like Kevin you basically don't have arms and legs now it has that whole sequence and then Michael. <laughs> And Dwight going back to, and forth to meet with corporate in New York. And when Michael puts his foot on the ledge of the window and just looks out and goes, the city. It's like he's he lacks so much self-awareness. Tell me a little... Because I, I believe you wrote that episode, right? I did. I did. Yeah. What, what, was, what was the inspiration for for wanting to do... <laughs> and Because the funny thing is that episode took so many interesting turns. Tell me a little bit the backstory on Stress Relief. You know, so that was an episode that was going to be after it was aired after the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was uh, it was written pretty quickly. Actually. Really, we we got the Super Bowl, and then and I was like, "All right, we have to do this." So, and, you know, I remember a lot of people pitching in on that, helping out with that script. But we just wanted these great big set pieces. Yeah, you know, these just big comedy giant sketches and and in particular we wanted something right after the super bowl ended that was just going to be unique and just non-stop jokes for a yes. while yeah and so when we came up with dwight um setting the office on fire <laughs> uh uh we knew we had something but but so jeff jeff blitz directed that one he, he directed quite a bit but he really had he had the idea to do it all as one, except for a couple of little pieces. Yeah. Just wanted it all to happen just right away and get everything. Like we had to, we had to do the cat thing separately. Yeah. yeah. The cat coming through the, the yeah. ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but everything else we just tried to, to, he was just like, let's have chaos. Yeah. And it made it, so we had a map of where people were supposed to go and stuff. But oh, wow. It made it so fun. The cameraman falling down, that was just, that just happened. Yeah. Uh, that was not scripted. <laughs> I can imagine in that chaos. I'm sure yeah. a couple of people almost tripped. Yeah. And so, and it just like, we didn't even, it wasn't like who gets through the door first. It wasn't this like carefully choreographed thing like it would be with other directors. Yeah. Probably it, every take was really different. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing about that episode is the juxtaposition between like humor and 
that's probably out of all the episodes, the most just empathy you have for Michael, where, you know, he sets up, you know, fast forward to, to later in the episode, he sets up the roast and he wants, you know, people to really let him have it. And, you know, people take him up on it and you can see, you know, at that point you realize, man, Steve Carell isn't just a, a, a great comedian. You could really see like pain on Michael's face. And even though he's been such a jerk, and he's, you know, you really feel sorry for him. How did you guys kind of go into that knowing you wanted to frame Michael as a really sympathetic character in that episode? Um, well, n- well, yeah, that was the story, you know, so, yeah. um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons he's so sympathetic is, is just because of Steve's acting, yeah. you know, he, he can put, do so much on his face. He can do like contradictory expressions yeah. you know, to do at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where he's like uh, furious and sad or, you know, cruel and yeah. Empathetic. Yeah. It, it, and I feel like there's, there's a couple like the, the moments where he's throwing the, <laughs> the, the whole pieces of bread and just calling for birds to come is so iconic. But like, I do feel like <laughs> and he's all, the, the spaceman monologue that he gives there, like the talking head where he talks about, you know, how there's this guy on a far off planet that doesn't see his problems, but he's got a powerful telescope and he can see I'm not okay. It was just so <laughs> gold. You know, sometimes to get perspective, I like to think about a spaceman on a star incredibly far away. And our problems don't matter to him because we're just a distant point of light. But he feels sorry for me because he has an incredibly powerful microscope and he can see my face. How how difficult was it as a writer? Because there was a couple of moments I feel like throughout the series where it never it never made the show not funny, but it also where you know where I feel like the episode where you it was revealed when Michael was a child he was on this children's TV show and he didn't have any friends and you know his constant uh, longing to have like a wife and kids and then and then the roast how difficult was it to balance that juxtaposition of making the audience fe- really feel for him but then also keeping the show as fun as funny as the office is you know I think it was easy I. Uh... After we got to know this guy, you know, like in the beginning, I will say, I mean, he was a little more David Brent. Yeah. But then once we adjusted, I mean, it, it did need a suggestion because that character was not built to stay, to keep his job. You yeah. know, that guy can't stay anywhere for years. Yeah. Um, he was too far off the edge and too incompetent. So when we had to make Michael a lot more real, and and Steve had to do that too. A, yeah. lot, a lot of that is just acting, you know. Um, yeah. So okay, so so he gets he gets very real. He has such a clear voice that yeah. even today I am sometimes like writing a talking head in in my mind for him. <laughs> it became easy. It's just yeah. like you got to know someone so well. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it it was a character that was capable of so much because he was dumb enough to do dumb comedy yeah, and kind of like mean enough to do some mean comedy and real enough to, to, to have true emotion. Yeah. And, and then like deep down, you know, there was a great kindness, uh, where he kind of really needed and loved these people. So it was such this, it was just, it was easy. Yeah. Well, and, and that's partly why I love stress relief. It, and that's my number five favorite episode is it packed. It was the joke density was so heavy. It was almost like a, like a classic Simpsons episode where it was like beat, beat joke, beat, beat. It was perfect. But it also had this real empathy, this real empathy for Michael, and and that's why my number four episode. It's kind of it's kind of cheating because it's two. But now you know we kind of rewatch. It's it's one. It had really great emotional weight, but also just incredible office awkwardness. And that's the Niagara episode at Jim and Pam's wedding. Yeah, that, that episode. I feel like sometimes my wife and I will just rewatch that almost as like a little standalone short film. Um, how much pressure, you know, from from like a, a writer and, and producer standpoint, was there to like stick the landing with Jim and Pam? Uh, huge. 
<laughs> really felt it. Like, you know, we had, we had really put that off as long as we could. Cause yeah. you know, you don't want to, it was helpful to have that kind of tension, but eventually the, you know, the characters just got there and it's too much of a yank to, to keep it going. Yeah. So we had, we had to bring them together. And uh, so there was a lot of tension there. And I remember there was a first draft of that um, that we read where the actors kind of like revolted afterwards. Yeah. How come? They, Revolt they, is a strong word, but they were like, oh, this is such a bummer, you know? And we just had like everything going wrong. And, yeah. um, and then we kind of realized uh, like we didn't need any to do anything else than to let them have a wedding. Yeah. You know, like we, we didn't need to pose any other kind of structure. Like the wedding itself is just, it's all built in. Like all the conflict yeah. is just built in already and the tension yeah. is built in. So once we did that, we kind of, it kind of really let all this like um, characters come out. I yeah. Guess, and just allowed a lot more just character comedy. And then, you know, that dance, you know, once we found the dance, oh. it was... It, it, that's a funny moment, but a beautiful one. And I have a, a, a seven-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter, and they will ask for me to just put on that scene. And they will do mm-hmm. like they like literally every character. They've already, they memorize the dance down the aisle. And because wow. I really do feel like, and and again, this is credit to Steve Carell because when the song when that Chris Brown kind of bah, 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 and 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 there's a little play with with Pam and her bridesmaids, the way that Michael looks at her. And it's such just pure glee that he, it's almost like he's the father and this was on YouTube and I can't believe I get to live something that I've always thought about. And that was, man, you really feel great for Michael Scott in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, you found it, and it was that was Greg had that idea. He found a way to make you feel good about everybody. Yeah, because because yeah. Jim and Pam got to have their secret wedding on the um, the Maiden Mist. Yeah, yeah, um, that was super romantic, and so like kind of cutting them together. Um, so you got to feel good for Jim and Pam, because so so nothing was ruined, you know. Yeah, and yeah, then, and then it was just joy. And I, there are a handful of episodes that take place outside of kind of the the walls of Dunder Mifflin and Scranton, and I feel like all of them work really well. You know, the dinner party, um, the the cocktails, yeah, booze cruise, um, the Dundies. What was it like from a writing perspective to take the cocktails? Yeah, cocktails is another just (laughs) when he the the scene where Michael. takes a sip of the, the, the aged brandy and he toasts uh, to Mr. DeLorean in his failed experiment and just chokes on it. I mean, it's, it sets it up, but I feel like every time the characters are out of the office, there are new ways to explore comedy. As a writer, did you, was that something you guys look forward to? Episodes where it was kind of out of the, the, the office? Yeah, I would say, I mean, <clears throat> we certainly didn't write with a formula, but you know, as, as we would search for things, sometimes it's as, it's as simple as like, okay, where else can we put them? Or yeah. here, let, let's, let's identify two characters that haven't had a story yet together. Yeah. What can we do with those two, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or well, where, where else can we put them? You know, how does it change everybody if everyone's in the supermarket, you know? Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing about Niagara, there's a great Toby-Michael interaction in the lobby of the hotel where Toby is just this generous guy and offers him the room. That was... Did you did you guys kind of know like, oh, we're teed up here for, for a good interaction? <laughs> I mean, it was all scripted. So we knew... I mean, anytime you, you, you get 
Toby doing something generous for Michael and him <laughs> slamming him. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. You kind of try to engineer those. Yeah. Well, the the other kind of I feel like the scene that most people, along with the dance, I mean, it, the, those two episodes are, are are classic. But the other scene is the the toast, and I, I have to imagine that you guys were just really looking forward to because even just saying Michael Scott wedding toast, it's like okay. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a that seems like you guys probably had a pretty high bar to to high to clear with people's yeah. expectation. What was it like, kind of setting that up? No, that's that was exactly right. That was just like we knew that was coming, and was I don't know what the words are going to be. <laughs> yeah, you know that was a that was a lot of pressure on that to write, but um, you know uh, Greg did write that one, so you know he wrote those toasts. Sometimes he has like. A, He'll ask the writers to each do toast stuff. Yeah. And then he'll just take all the notes and assemble everything and yeah. try trying some sense to it, order, put put his own stuff in. And um, although that's a lot of that's a lot of group writing, right? Yeah. What is the deal with the smart car? How smart is that? Those things are tiny. Can you even drive them in traffic? Uh, I'm so smart. E equals MC Sp- Squared, I, I drive a smart car. That's not smart in my book. The real smart car is Kit from Knight Rider. Knight Rider. That's a car that can talk. <laughs> can a smart car talk? Nope, no. that's not smart. And also Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Very smart. And you, everybody can laugh. It doesn't have to just be the idiots. Everybody can laugh. Nope. Yeah, go ahead. Like I said, I'm, as you can tell, I've like watched this series over and over. It's just cool you hearing kind you- of the inside. You clearly know it better than me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I haven't seen it since we did it. Really? You, yeah. you, are you like that with all your work? Do you ever do you ever, yeah. you don't ever have the impulse never, to revisit? I never watch anything. It, are, are, I, but I'm sure you have an awareness of kind of like the new life that it's found with, you know, younger and younger viewers. Is that kind of weird? Like now, I mean, it's because it's been off the air for probably, uh, what, eight, 10 years now before, you know, the series finale? Yeah, yeah. No, I've never experienced that where something goes off the air and then becomes bigger than it yeah. was when it was on the air. Yeah. How how often are you like approached and like, hey, it's Toby. Is that weird still? It's you know, I forget. I forget yeah. that I'm yeah. Because my own life is all like is pretty small. Mm-hmm. You know, and right now it's you know, it's COVID, of course. Yeah. It's incredibly yeah. small. But even when it wasn't COVID, it was like, you know, I I my car is in a garage and I yeah. take it to another garage or yeah. an office and I don't really like go out. Yeah. So then when I do go out and you know, or just like take a walk and then some car just like pulls over um, <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> it just, it never occurs to me. That's like a Toby fan who's good. Yeah. Like, when it goes, hey, yeah. 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 Well, I, I feel like Toby is one of the most endearing characters. I mean, they're all great, but there's something there's something so everyman about Toby. And when you find out when he has that revelation, I think it's I think that's at Phyllis's wedding where he talks about how he ended up in Scranton. And you're like, oh man, like you just feel so bad where you find out he came, he wanted to be a priest, but then he kind of fell in love and then the marriage didn't work out. That really kind of was like, oh man, yeah, now I really want to root for Toby even more. <laughs> Yeah, you're rooting for Toby and Michael. Yeah. You know, and his yeah. you're rooting for both sides of uh, yeah. the argument. Well, so so um I have stress release number five, Niagara number four. And again, these are just okay. you know very personal, uh uh they're all incredible. But the one that I, I think I've laughed the the hardest at is the episode is the season two, it's the injury. And uh, I want to break down the episode a little, but the scene that, I mean, I, I, I in prepping for this, I kind of rewatched some of these again. And the scene that I honestly, like, it, it, it is just such a, like, a brilliant dance of, like, deadpan, of uncomfortableness, and sort of, like, off-screen physical comedy. And it involves Toby, Ryan, and Michael. And Michael has, has has cooked his foot in the George Foreman grill and is in the bathroom. Uh, Toby and Ryan are on the other side of the door. And you hear Michael wedge himself. <laughs> Even just talking about it, I laugh. When Michael says, bring a wet towel and I need him to clean me up. And, and you have this like over the top, 
it wasn't like cartoonish, but you could hear like splashing water and these big <laughs> grunt, these these grunts of pain. But then you just see the sheer uncomfortableness on Ryan's face when he's like sitting at <laughs> Ryan. But then you have Toby just deadpan and says, "Ryan's dead. You only grilled your foot." Like it was, it was like this perfect juxtaposition of three styles of comedy. <laughs> oh. Oh, God. oh, help! Help! What, what happened? I fell off the toilet. I'm caught between the toilet and the wall. What do you need? No, not you. Someone else. Get Pam. I think Pam's going to want to come into the men's room. Get Ryan. Oh, he needs to lift me. And he needs to clean me up a little bit. Bring a wet towel. Ryan is uh, dead. No, he's not. Dead. I just saw him. No. Can't... Can you just get up yourself? I, you only grilled your foot. No, oh, forget it. I'll just get up myself. No! How? Oh! Oh, God! What was that? What was playing that scene like? That was really fun. That was so early on still that, you know, things were still in fl- Nothing was set, you know? I, I had no idea how, how BJ was going to play that. Yeah. You know, and we do it, we do it, obviously... Steve wasn't, you know, in the bathroom doing yeah. his thing right then. Yeah. He was probably giving us lines from behind the door. But yeah. No, I don't I don't think we knew what was coming. And I and a bunch of those lines I think were were um improvised too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it works so well because, like I said, it was three distinct styles of comedy that you put in this weird scenario of boss with, you know, a burned foot getting jammed behind a toilet. And like I said, just like Toby's like, this is my life. Like you see so much in Toby's face yeah. at this point. Like this is literally what I come to this office to do every day and I have to deal with this. I feel like you really nailed so uh, much just in that look. Yeah. Yeah. You, so we, so we, it's it's weird because like the writer part is is like Ryan's dead, yeah. You know? yeah, um, yeah. Then I'm like, okay, that'll be that'll be, that'll all be funny. We all yeah. I think that's funny. Put it in the script, and then um, I mean, I didn't I didn't write that episode, but um, we we, we all worked on everything a little bit. So I don't know. I I can't remember the original scene if it was very close to it or not. But in any case, you get on set and you have you have this this line, Ryan's dead. And then you're, you have, you, then I'm a person and I'm saying Ryan's dead. So I know that. So like, I didn't know I had to immediately act like I'm taking that back. Like how, how bad a decision it was to say that. <laughs> but what you just that say? was always a fun thing to try yeah. to take the lines. And then ad- I guess that's just the, the, the actor's journey, you know, yeah. which, is, which was new to me. Yeah. You know, take the lines and make them human. Yeah. The, that that episode also had, I feel like, one of the top three kind of cringiest moments for a viewer. Like number one is Scott Stotts. Like we, I, like people use yeah. that. I, I'm in conversations, and and people use that as an adjective now. Like, dude, that's like Scott Stotts. Like that's super awkward. That's too cringy. I can't do it. You know what I mean? Like they, they when if they if we, if I leave an awkward scenario, they're like, dude, that was Scott Stotts. Like, but <laughs> <laughs> because that episode, that's the one that's most difficult to rewatch because you actually feel the anxiety but i feel like the injury episode some people have said that we went too far there but (laughs) i i I still love it okay (laughs) yeah i still i i have friends that are like i can't i'm like dude i still i still love it but there's a scene in the injury that talking about walking right up to a line it's when he (laughs) he invites billy merchant the um, the uh, proprietor of the or the landlord of of the Dunder Mifflin office, Scranton, who's in a wheelchair, and Michael's trying to do a, an awareness thing about how insensitive everyone's being because he cooked his foot, and he says some things in that scene that are so cringy and awkward. What and you guys are all in the room. What was it? What's it like being in the room? Not just for like funny, like when you know the jokes are hitting, but when the point isn't kind of like the the punchline setup, but to really make the audience cringe. What's it like being in the room? And do you feel that cringe when it when they're being filmed? Definitely, it becomes super honest there. <laughs> that that cringe was there for real. You know, you write you write these things, and then someone with a real disability comes in and just like. <laughs> 
what did we do? This is not, this is not okay. Um, but one of the, one, another moment of real, real cringe was when, uh, uh, when Michael kisses Oscar. Yeah. And uh, we didn't, that was not, that was not scripted to be like that. Yeah. And watching it happen, we just, it was like, what's going on? <laughs> so like the reactions in the room are real at that point. Yeah. I, I felt, <laughs> I was like, Oh God. <laughs> did you guys ever, you know, you, you mentioned like, Oh, did we go too far? But the office really was a boundary pushing show and was willing to talk about issue, you know, things like race and sexuality and um, you know, kind of, Things that I want to—I don't want to say are like taboo on when primetime TV, but it was certainly it—it it was certainly taboo to, in a way, you know, make light of ignorance and expose ignorance in the way that the show did. Like it walked a really fine line. From a writing perspective, what was that like? Trying to balance like you don't want to you don't want the joke to be the joke. The joke is this guy is so ignorant that he thinks it's okay to say that. What was it like, kind of in that tension? Yeah, that was the um, the savior of the the reaction shot, you know. Yeah, it, it just and the gym of it, you know, when yeah. when we needed to when we needed to just call something out, you know, we, we wanted to get the joke, and then we wanted to get how wrong the joke was, you know. I yeah. thought we we got them both, you know. Yeah, yeah. Was, oh, yeah no, that's not okay. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was yeah within the honest reactions to it. It, it let us explore those boundaries. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really feel like all of the shows have aged well because they allow people to kind of talk about things without... Like, um, I, man, I forget his name. The the actor um, who was the, the moderator in the, uh, the race episode early on. Uh, he's a brilliant comedian, and, and I, I, his, his name escapes me. Larry Wilmore? Larry Wilmore. Yeah. Like, his, his reactions... I feel like made that episode okay because he was in a, he was, you know, kind of the audience surrogate at that point. Like, and because he was an outsider coming into the office yeah. and it felt like as a TV viewer, you were living it through his eyes. Like, I cannot believe this guy's like it. He just found that super rational level to play it where he was just a normal guy. He cared. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yes, it was so good. Well, well, the injury is my my number three. Like I said, okay. so many classic moments for, from that from that episode. And again, it was another high joke density. Even when he's even just like a quick, even the little quick moments like where Michael's calling his mom. He's like, "No, mom." They, you know, like it's oh, it's so perfect. Michael's relationship. His mother's always unseen. She's always on the phone, and you know, it's like when when uh, Dwight and Michael go clubbing in the city, and Michael is calling his mom to give her updates. That relationship is so great, even though it's sort of you. Know, not fully. You just get a little hint of how weird that's going. Or that that talking head where Michael uh, says that he has a the, how he grilled his foot. Yeah, I could think it's so soon. Great was a great fun moment. I enjoy having breakfast in bed. I like waking up to the smell of bacon. Sue me. And since I don't have a butler, I have to do it myself. So. Most nights before I go to bed, I will lay six strips of bacon out on my George Foreman grill. Then I go to sleep. When I wake up, I plug in the grill. I go back to sleep again. Then I wake up to the smell of crackling bacon. It is delicious. It's good for me. It's a perfect way to start the day. Today, I got up, I stepped onto the grill, and I clamped down on my foot. That's it. I don't see what's so hard to believe about that. Uh, all right. So the, the injury is number three. Number two, <clears throat> number two is kind of an interesting choice because it's, it's limited cast. But I feel like it's another episode that walked cringe and humor so well. And that is in season four, The Dinner Party, where, uh, it, you yeah. know, it's, we're, we're, we're back at Michael's condo. And it has this great kind of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf setup where you have these two, you have this domestic relationship that the viewers already know is volatile. You know, like the viewers were on this journey from that one night at Chili's and we followed them. Now they're in a condo together. And even the initial setup where Michael set, the, the great running joke too is trying to get people to hang out with him. 
and the setup where he has he's told everyone that corporate is making them stay late, so they have to clear their calendars. And then he goes and and he calls corporate. These people are my friends, and demands that they they cancel the assignment so that he can get them to come to the house. Trapping them in the condo with Michael and Jan, it it, it produced such incredible comedy. What was sort of the genesis of that episode? It really was kind of uh, a Virginia Woolf kind of thing yeah. uh, that that we were going for. Yes, just kind of pulling them out for 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 their own, just changing locales too. Yeah, but yeah. trapping them in and just this slow build and burn to to <laughs> to an intolerable you know situation. <laughs> Uh, that was actually, I, I feel like that was one of the best episodes that we've done for sure. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Top five, yeah. if not one. Yeah. It, it's so funny because it, it, it balances awkwardness. And there's also a lot of great moments of like physical humor that, that you don't always get when they're at the office. Like even just the, the, the shot of Michael laying show displaying how he lays himself on the ottoman because jan has space issues in the bed and he's just curled up on the ottoman it it just it just worked everything worked and you saw kind of the misery and humor in their relationship you know was that one kind of in the writer's room where i can only imagine it had to be like well then jan you know the 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 thing still has to braise until midnight and was it just one of those things where you just kind of ratchet it up yeah, I mean, let's see. I remember that script coming in great, and there wasn't a lot of rewriting that needed to be done. Uh, that was Lee and Gene, uh, these writers, these terrific writers who, who did that one. So I don't remember, you know, sometimes we yeah. pitch a ton and send people off. I don't remember how that one came about. I, I mean, we certainly talked about it a lot before they wrote. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, a lot of the Michael and Jan stuff, I feel like, produced such memorable moments, and and that was such an interesting relationship dynamic. And that, it, it, before I move on to number one, which which I know I believe you wrote and directed, I, I unpack the Michael and Jan relationship. Like, when did you guys know that this could be not just a dynamic that can? Because I feel like early on it kind of pushed the plot forward, but it really wasn't explored for comedy. When were you guys realized like these two together are just gold? So, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's some things we planned out and then some things that just worked and evolved, you know? So yeah. I, we didn't have a master plan for them, but yeah. as I look back on it, it, it was like, it, it really was an arc of uh, um, this, like an arc of a, of a failed relationship, you know, and yeah. a, of, of a re, like a relationship that was just doomed from the beginning, but you got it. You got what Jan got out of it. You got what Michael got out of it. Yeah. You know, and uh, how they both benefit from it and then found it like destructful. And with Jan, we just watched this. Eventually we realized what we were doing was, was in cocktails. You know, we were, when she did this talking head on the, on the lawn, we realized, okay, yeah. this is a woman who's going to self-destruct. Yeah, you know, and and picking Michael was just part of it. She needed to blow up her life for whatever reason. Yeah, and uh, and he was part of it, and he was yeah. along the ride. I am taking a calculated risk. What's the upside? I overcome my nausea, fall deeply in love, babies, normalcy, no more self-loathing. Downside, I uh, date Michael Scott publicly and collapse in on myself like a dying star. <laughs> Well, and that 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 kind of my my number one favorite episode, and uh, and, and really the the crux of a lot of the tension and humor is Jan and Michael, and that's money, which is was a two parter. I believe you wrote and directed that one, yeah. right? Yeah, the, the that was season that, four. Yeah, for me, that was a super. That was an incredible experience. Yeah, and when I look back on moments, like I said, I was you know when I think back on them, I have more moments you know attached to that episode than than any other yeah well well, tell me a little bit about like so when you're i'm sure there's a thousand ideas but how did that because it was a longer one too it was one of those like kind of two combined into one yeah and it went in a lot of different like plot wise it went in a lot of different directions but it also because it took michael out into a new workplace 
you got to see a new side of him with his coworkers, but he's still anchored at Dunder Mifflin. Like he's still Michael Scott, the boss. Tell me a little bit about writing that episode because it does, you get to see these new sides of the characters, but you also get to see the depths of the weird codependency of Jan and Michael. Yeah, we, we, we started with a few ideas. It was Michael has a night job. Michael goes broke. Yeah. Uh, Michael runs away. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which came back in the later season where he gets lost. Where he doesn't run away, but he gets lost. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then I had just I had taken a trip to Italy and and saw that they they had this movement which which I think got a little bigger in this country um, afterwards was uh, farm stays and turning part of your farm into a B and B. Agrotourism, as to why Yeah, it. agrotourism. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so doing that to Dwight um, and having Jimmy Pam say there made it was was all we needed. You know, like yeah. it didn't need more to that story. Just to just play those moments. Yeah. You know? and, and what's and, and what's interesting, I feel like out of all the episodes, you know, Dwight, I, I can only imagine was the hardest character to make people have like Michael, you know, from the beginning that all of his kind of cringiness as, as a boss is really rooted in like insecurity and loneliness, you know, but Dwight, it just seems like Dwight's Dwight and the kind of this weird guy. And how are you ever going to make people have empathy for him? Because he's Dwight, you know, he's, he's like Mr. Tough guy. He doesn't have empathy for anyone, but when there's a scene where Jim and Pam and, and cousin Mose, of course, are in like the Harry Potter, like Dwight is reading them Harry Potter. And, you know, Dwight is, has obviously gone through this, you know, difficult situation with Angela and he's so alone. And, you know, of course, Mose is fully enthralled in the reading and Jim and Pam are, are, you know, kind of nestled together and hugging on the bed while Dwight reads. And it, there are a couple tender moments with Dwight there that you actually, for the, I think, for the first and maybe one of the only times until later in the season, like the, the, the finale is, is incredible. And, and you really do, yeah. you know, have an affection for Dwight there. But um, what, we, how did you decide, like, okay, we have to make people feel for Dwight? I don't know if that was part of the decision. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't like a goal. Yeah, I don't know. When an actor becomes like more human, and you got to give it, it's a lot to rain. But when when you you know show show a fuller side, uh, a, a fuller picture of a person, yeah, they become more empathetic. Yeah, you know? and you just when you when you understand what someone cares about, they become more empathetic. So, so part of going to the farm, it just seemed like uh, uh, the nature of it. We were gonna get more insight into into Dwight. Yeah. And also I love it too, because it, it hints at, <laughs> in a hilarious way, it hints at some darkness with cousin Mose. Like when, uh, you know, they're kind of allude to Jim, Jim in the night terrors. And he's like, he has night terrors. Oh yes. Ever since the storm, <laughs> like it was there any backstory there or was it just like the more mystery we can make with cousin Mose, the better. Yeah. I don't know. It was just line by line uh, writing jokes. Yeah. Um, I remember sitting in a, uh, a cafe in St. Petersburg, Russia. I was on vacation writing this episode yeah. and, and wrote the Moe's line. And I just have this memory of, of Moe's um, running through the field when Jim and Pam. Yeah. <laughs> side by I side. To the car, that and moment writing, I usually don't remember writing a lot, but that one was, I was laughing to myself in a cafe in uh, St. Petersburg. Yeah. It, 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 that whole storyline was great. And then, you know, the Michael getting the other job and learning the PowerPoint scene is great too, where he blows off PowerPoint and, and, and you really have, I feel like that's one of the first times you really see like the evolution of Ryan from the temp to another character that ended up self-destructing. But, uh, what, how fun was it kind of writing, letting the tables turn on Michael and Ryan? They still had a long way to go, right? We hadn't done we haven't done the Michael Scott paper company yet. Yeah. So this was, this was when Ryan had gone from shortly before we, it was revealed that he was now, uh, he had gone from temp and he had applied for the corporate job. All right. And, All right. and he came and back and he, Michael. yeah, he, he had instructed everyone to do PowerPoint training. And it was really one of the first times where Ryan was put in the position that Michael was where he's the boss having to, to, to enforce things. And that PowerPoint scene, the other thing that's great about that scene is you have, 
Ryan, who's obviously angry at Michael, and Michael trying to play off that he's learned PowerPoint. But the dialogue, and, and Toby has a big part of this, is arguing about the correct use of whom grammatically. Like, what, what a perfect moment. Were, were, did you have, what, what did you study uh, like uh, English in college? Like, where did, like, hey, let's make a kind of a running, a kind of an extended grammar joke come from? Well, no, I knew, I knew how to use it, but um, uh, it's funny. Everybody wanted me to cut that little section. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. our scripts are too long, so we send it around to all the writers to circle different things. Yeah. And then a writer's assistant brings all those scripts together, and they, then they compile all the circled things and give you a thing. So when I got to that page, I saw every writer had circled this, just like, cut it, cut it. But um, no, the idea was just like, okay, bring these two characters into a moment of great tension and then do something really, really mundane. Yeah. In the middle of What I really want, honestly, Michael, is for you to know it so that you can communicate it to the people here, to your clients, to whomever. Okay. What? It's whoever, not whomever. That's whomever. No, whomever is never actually right. Well, sometimes it's right. Michael is right. It's a made-up word used to trick students. No. Actually, whomever is the formal version of the word. Obviously, it's a real word, but I don't know when to use it correctly. Not an artist, I know what's right, but I'm not going to say, because you're all jerks who didn't come see my band last night. Do you really know which one is correct? I don't know. It's whom when it's the object of the sentence and who when it's the subject. That sounds right. Well, it sounds right, but is it? How did Ryan use it as an object? As an object. Ryan used me as an object. Is he right about that? How did he use it again? It was, Ryan wanted Michael, the subject, to uh, explain the computer system, the object. Thank you. To whomever, meaning us, the indirect object, which is the, the correct usage of the word. No one uh, asked you anything ever, so whomever's name is Toby, why don't you take a letter opener and stick it in your skull? Hey, this doesn't matter, and uh, I don't even care. It, it worked, though. It totally worked. The, it also That episode also uh, contains what I consider in the top three lines of the entire series, which is <laughs> even just thinking about it makes you laugh where Michael, he's cutting up his credit cards and he walks into the office and he just shouts, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> it was, <laughs> d- did you know when you wrote that joke? Like, Oh man, this is, this is going to go down as an all timer. <laughs> I don't know if I wrote that joke specifically. I can't remember. Sometimes you have a joke and then that's like, we, so we organize a whole thing to get yeah. to it. Yeah. I can never remember what I wrote and what other, what other people, sometimes I remember if, some, if, if other people wrote it, but, uh, yeah. but you know, we kind of knew him coming and <laughs> not knowing how to declare bankruptcy. <laughs> he thought he could just declare it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even like year, even however many years later, it's still like, of course, Michael Scott thinks that's what it is. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like the other time where Ke- <laughs> Kevin gets his cancer results and it's negative, and Michael just rips off his homemade, uh, uh, you know, live strong bracelets and hugs him just because he has a fundamental dis- misunderstanding of something that everyone else just intuitively knows. You know. Yeah. I declare. Bankruptcy! The the other, from a director standpoint, when I watch this episode, there's there's a one moment with Jan where I feel like it, if if I had to distill Jan into a, like a single self a moment of self awareness where you get like okay she knows it's when she's she comes to pick up Michael from his night job in the Porsche and she like she's walking out she goes you drive. I've had too much wine. And she stares right at the camera and like, don't you judge me. Don't you dare judge me. That was, that was Jan in, that was the entirety of Jan. You know, the Porsche, the, I didn't go to yoga. I had, I drove here after I drank too much wine. It's like the ambition and the self-destruction all in the course of about four seconds. What a great, what a hilarious moment Uh, to have her look at the camera. That's uh, thanks a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot about uh, directing from that episode. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul, man, it, it, it's, it's so fun to like reminisce about some of these classic episodes, you know, and I, I think obviously you have your perspective is different, especially having not kind of revisited a lot of these. Were there any other episodes to you that maybe for reasons other than what a viewer would think that you have especially fond memories of? I loved doing the parkour cold open. <laughs> 
that was that was such a blast. Yeah, you know, and um, we did a take. You know, it wasn't, and it was so quiet. And uh, and I was just doing it. And it just felt like there was something wrong. And so in the after that, I said, every time you do something, yell parkour. <laughs> and it just it just it was. And then like this whole thing came together and they just went nuts yeah. and, and told them to just do whatever they wanted on the set, just climb over everything. And yeah. <laughs> and they, they totally killed it. That was a blast to do. Well, th- there's one other thing in money that I meant to bring up because a lot of people ask me who's my favorite character. You know, when we're, again, you'd be surprised. Well, you probably wouldn't be, but how many times people just are talking randomly about The Office? Like, because it is, especially, and not to be uh, overly, uh, I don't know, but like, especially like 2020, like The Office has sort of been on Netflix, like this comfort food where it's like, there's so much if if you just need a break from the world you can go back to scranton with this weird family that you've kind of spent so much time with but the the so a lot of people are you know i feel like even now are rewatch like i was reading somewhere the other night where someone was struggling was literally like struggling with anxiety and would just pl- but she would play the office as she sleeps at night so if she woke up in the middle of the night it was like the old gang and you know there's this uh, comfort to it but there yeah, there that's was amazing yeah, and I feel like it does that for for like sometimes I know friends who if they have like a stressful day at work, it's like I'm gonna go home and watch and watch one episode, and that will you know kind of reset you know reset everything a little. But the the character that I I often talk about, and and you really get a peek <laughs> behind this dark curtain in money his creed when he, he, he explains why Michael should declare bankruptcy. And you, you, you realize that creed isn't just kind of a weird guy. He's probably done some devious stuff. Did you guys always know that you could make creed into sort of this, like, you know, kind of shady criminal creed. It was great because, you know, like there's a lot of characters where you feel like one, you might have to protect them. Like you can't have them, you know, do things like you couldn't make Dwight a criminal. Yeah. And then there's a reality established with other characters. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, you can't really break it. With Creed, we didn't have an established reality. Yeah. It was like, we we never did quite figure out what planet he was on. And we could do so much, you know, from like, want to see it, want to see a toe with, want to see a foot with, Four toes, was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, um, or, hey, I live by the quarry. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or he didn't know what his job was. Quabity, quabity afterwards. <laughs> or, um, and then there was, it got to the point where I think we did one where he didn't know if he was visible. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, did we air that? You probably I don't think so. I don't think oh, so. Oh, yeah. So I don't think we actually aired that one. But there was, yeah, we had we had a scene where he didn't know that people could, he didn't know that people could see him. Maybe <laughs> 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 we were correct in cutting that. <laughs> well, he has one of my other favorite lines of the series, and it's early on the carpet when everyone is kind of gathering around and Todd Packer has left a gift on Michael Scarfer and it stinks up the office, and everyone's like gagging and trying to figure out what happened. And Creed just walks over and goes. Somebody cooking soup? And it's like, who is this guy? <laughs> oh, it's so good. Well, Paul, man, I really appreciate you taking some time. And I know you also, you know, uh, you know, worked on Space Force, which I thought was so funny and so great. Do you have any other projects? I know kind of COVID's got things in a holding pattern, but any other projects coming down the pipeline? Well, you know, I'm doing this audio thing that I love. Uh, um, it's just called Captain. Okay. And it's, uh, it's a sci-fi, but it's very anti-sci-fi. It's about yeah. this, this guy, um, this captain of a spaceship in the future who really has no interest in space travel or okay. exploration. And then the whole, I mean, it's, it's 370 pages. We're recording it now. And uh, oh, wow. in, the, in the whole thing, there are zero missions, <laughs> you know, and there's just a lot of hanging out in space. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's got a great cast. Will Forte is playing the captain. Oh, man. And uh, John Malkovich is going to narrate. Wow. And Wyatt Cenac and Rain is in it. Um, and Adam Scott. I think Gill- Gillian just signed on to. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really fun. Do you know when, do you have an idea of when it will release or kind of, is it going to be podcast or audiobook? 
it's going to go through Audible. Oh, cool. Very cool. Um, so it'll be released as like one of those Audible originals in, uh, in sometime in the spring. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to check it out. I, and, I, and I'm glad it's more finding humor in the mundane because that it just works so well, you know, especially for people like who've been in quarantine for six months. It's like, you know, really finding comfort and humor, even like, I love the setup too. It's someone in like the most exciting job in the world who's actually really bored with it. It's great. That's perfect, man. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I always thought, uh, I always thought captains of spaceships cared too much. Yeah. You know, I, just, I never believe I've never met anyone who cared as much as a captain of a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like the turn there, man. I can't wait for it to come out on Audible. I'll definitely uh, uh, thanks, uh, check thanks. it out. All right, everyone. That is it for this episode of Listed on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. 